name uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Does that ring a bell? The name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, a Lutheran minister in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. A Lutheran minister, but Bonhoeffer was also uh, an outspoken critic of the Nazi party that were, of course, uh, rising to power in Germany at that time. Now, let me state the obvious. Uh, being a outspoken critic of Adolf Hitler in the 30s and 40s was not exactly an easy thing to, to be. And so it proved for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As a Christian, speaking out, feeling that he has to take a stand against what he sees in the Nazi party, Bonhoeffer was arrested, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in awful circumstances, and eventually, and now we're talking near, nearly, I think, 1945, eventually uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, eventually executed. Now, here's what I want you to see. Prior to his arrest, Bonhoeffer wrote a book that has become a modern Christian classic. And uh, given the horrific circumstances of his life, certainly towards the end of his life, I, I guess there's rarely been a book written with a more apt and appropriate title. What was the name of the book? I know most of you know the answer to that. The name of the book was The Cost of Discipleship. Wouldn't you agree it sounds like Bonhoeffer would have known a thing or two about that? The Cost of Discipleship. Well, this morning, uh, we come to a section of Scripture that I'll confess readily to start with uh, is not an easy portion of Scripture and can be uh, very, very confusing. Because, isn't it true that on first reading... From verse 42 to verse 50, it seems to be this sort of collection of sayings, random sayings, it seems, that have been thrown together just because of connecting terminology. Words like fire connect these phrases, or words like salt and so forth. Well, well, hopefully what we're going to see just now is actually that these sayings aren't just thrown together because of common phraseology and common terms, but they're together... Because they fit beautifully and perfectly with Jesus' theme in this chapter. And what is that theme? What is the theme? We too this morning, by the Holy Spirit of God, we consider the cost. The cost of being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship. So friends... I'll invite you to do this. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 9.42 and, and let us just pray uh, before uh, we, we look at these verses. Uh, Lord God Almighty, you are a transcendent and majestic God and we are but the dust of the earth. And how it is that we plead with you just now that you would open our eyes that we might see more of the glory of Jesus that you might help us to understand these verses that are hard to our ears. May they not be hard to our hearts, Lord God. May you show all of us in here, the Christians, those who are not, may you show us more of the truth and the, and the glory of your word, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so if you've got scripture uh, open in front of you, Mark uh, 9.42, let's notice a first thing that we see here, and that is a warning about leading others astray. A warning about leading others astray. And in this heading, this first heading, all I want us to do is to look at one verse, and that is all. It is verse 42. So would you, would you follow the verse as I, I read it again? Verse 42. So this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this. And if anyone causes one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, and listen to what Jesus says, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. I'm going to read it again. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now, if, if we are going to work out what the Lord Jesus is telling us there and, and what he is saying to us, there is a first thing that is obvious that we must establish. And it is who Jesus is speaking about. Do you see what I mean by that? Who are the little ones that we are never, ever a cause to sin? I'll tell you what, let me just flick it over to you. Let me turn it over to you. Who would you say these little ones are? Are you still in that Capernaum house of a few weeks ago where there was this little toddler? Do you remember running around and Jesus uh, picks up the little toddler to his arms? Is that what you're thinking here? That the little ones, that this is Jesus speaking of children. Is that what you're thinking? It is not right. Now let me state this as clearly as I uh, possibly can. The little ones here They are actually the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Not children, but the disciples. Now you may be thinking, oh, he seems pretty confident about that. Well, let me show you why. Let me give you three reasons why I, I think it is the disciples. Okay, first of all, just think about the context. You see it? Now, follow the logic here. The verse that we're dealing with It is the partner verse to the one that has gone before. Okay, so just have a look at verse 41. What's Jesus talking about there? Do you remember it from last week? Jesus is talking about the correct way of dealing with the disciples. Remember, give them a cup of water. You know, love your fellow Christians. He's dealing there with the correct way to deal with the disciples. And then what's the counterpart verse, the partner verse? He's now dealing with what? The incorrect way to deal with whom? It's not kids. Correct way to deal with the disciples. Now, the incorrect way to deal with the disciples. You see, the little ones dealing with the disciples. So you've got the context. But then, another reason. Think about exactly what it is that Jesus is saying to you. Now, if you were, if you were, don't look at, don't look at scripture. Listen to me. If somebody was saying, what does that verse say? What would you say? You would say, oh, I think it was, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, and a millstone thrown in the sea, right? It's not what it says. Now have a look and see exactly what Jesus says. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, what's the next bit? If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Who's he talking about? He's talking about 
people who believe in him. You see? Who's he talking? He's talking about his disciples. Okay, and are you still not convinced? Still somewhat skeptical? Well, then, consider with me just the rest of the Bible. I mean, consider the rest of Scripture. Like, okay, okay, this is the only time that Mark uses the little ones to speak of the disciples. But Matthew, Matthew does it all the time. You see, I'll give you one example, just a parallel passage in Matthew 10, 42. Listen to this. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a child? No, because he is a disciple. So you you see what we're dealing with. Who are the little ones that we are never to cause to sin? Who are they? The children? No, it is the people of God. It is the disciples. Okay, so we know, we know first of all who Jesus is speaking about. He is speaking about you and me and Christians. What then is the warning that we are given here by God. Uh, let me tell you a truth that I'm sure every single parent <laughs> in the congregation this morning would affirm. I think parents are going to stand behind me on this. Uh, one of the, the great worries that parents have, especially, I think, uh, when a child, let's say, goes away to high school, secondary school, parents worry about their children falling into the wrong crowd. Don't they? If you're a parent, I'm sure you're with me on this. They worry about, you know, children and wrong influences. You know, maybe befriending somebody uh, who is going to encourage them to do some really dodgy things that they wouldn't do of their own accord. You know, falling into the wrong crowd. Isn't that exactly what we are dealing with in this portion of Scripture? Because you need to ask yourself this. Why does Jesus choose here? to refer to the disciples as little ones. Is it not that they are the little ones of God? Is it not that that we are, that the disciples were children to a heavenly father? And so you see then what this is about. That our God too is concerned that his little ones, that his children fall into the wrong crowd. That our God is concerned that his people might be led astray. And you noticed it, didn't you? I mean, so concerned is God by this. That what is this warning? Have a look at the warning. He, Jesus speaks of, what is this? A millstone. Now, can I ask you, do, do you know what a millstone is or was? A millstone? It was a huge, massive, heavy stone. In the ancient world, it would be attached to a donkey. Okay? And the donkey would walk round and round in a circle, grinding this huge stone into the corn. That's a millstone. Massive stone. Massive stone. And do you see what Jesus says about this? What is to be done? That should we lead Christians astray, what's to be done? It is to be attached to a person's neck as they are thrown into the sea. I mean, what a warning this is. We have to remind ourselves, this is our Lord speaking here. What a warning. 
So I tell you what, friends, we have to pause at this point, don't we? We have to seek to... This is shocking. We have to seek to apply what we've got here. Because you see what it is that Jesus is saying to you this morning, do you? He is saying that it is a terrible thing in God's eyes to cause another believer to sin. It is a terrible thing in God's eyes. So do we do this? But you and me, are we guilty of this atrocity that, that, that Christ forbids here? Do we do this? If so, how are we doing this? Well, let me give you a few ways that you and I fall exactly into this error. First of all, the direct ways that you and I can lead others astray. Would you, would you follow me in these examples? Would you think about these? First of all, what about the young Christian man who leads his Christian girlfriend into sexual sin? Isn't that exactly what we're dealing with here? Or what about the Christian who encourages their Christian spouse to take the sort of liberties with their finances that maybe aren't exactly above board? Isn't that relevant here? Isn't it relevant? Or what about the, the Christian guy in the congregation who invites his Christian friend to go to the pub with him and perhaps just drink, you know, one or two drinks too much? Isn't that a direct way of leading another believer into sin? Direct ways. You see it? Direct ways. But what do we need to think about? We need to think about the indirect ways that we do this as well. And so I have one thing for you to consider just now. And that is the example that you set as a believer. You see what I mean? Surely you, you see what I mean? I mean, what about the young, impressionable Christian who takes note of our infrequence at church? Isn't that exactly what we're talking about here? Or what about the new convert who hears the way that, that we talk about other believers behind their backs? Isn't that this? Or what about even uh, the child who sees how much we drink over the festive period? Do you see it? Aren't we, friends, all of us, aren't we in danger of leading believers astray by the very example that we set? Aren't we? Aren't we? Friends, you see what happens when, when you and I begin to dissect Mark 9.42. What do we see? What do we hear? We hear that this strong word from the Lord Jesus Christ is a word to each and every one of us in this building, isn't it? Like, don't you read this and don't you feel in your heart that you have much to confess before your God, don't you? Why? Because indirect ways and in indirect ways, I think every single one of us in here is doing something. And what's that? We are leading the children of God in error, we are leading the children of God astray. We all do this. So a warning about leading others astray. A second thing that we have to, to notice in this portion of Scripture is a warning about tolerating our own sin. 
It's our second heading. A warning about tolerating our own sin. I, I hope you see, friends, the movement of Jesus' thought in this portion of Scripture. So he's just been talking about the way that we behave towards whom? Other people, other Christians. And he moves from that to now speaking about the way that we behave full stop. Because from verse 43 onwards, our Lord's concern is for the seriousness of our discipleship. His concern now is for how serious you and I are taking our indwelling sin. And so I, before we launch into this, let me ask you a question. Is that part of your Christian experience this morning? You know, as you sit in here at this point of your life, are you very conscious that you are battling your indwelling sin? Is this one of your foremost priorities? Are you identifying sin? Are you seeking with everything you have to fight those sins? Is that you today or not? Well, friend, even if it is that today as a Christian you're sitting here and you're not taking your sin seriously, know this, that today as you sit in here, Almighty God is taking your sin very, very seriously indeed. And I think we see that in this portion of Scripture in a couple of ways. First of all, in the image that Jesus uses, the image that he uses here. Now, bear with me, this is not easy. We have all, I think, heard of stories like this, the one that I'm about to mention. In fact, I think many of us, maybe most of us, know people who have been in these circumstances. So I don't say this as an illustration lightly. I, I know people who have been in this predicament. But consider, let's say, the poor soul who receives a cancer diagnosis. And it's a, a cancer diagnosis in, let's say, their foot or a, a lower limb. And that moment comes where the doctor approaches them and you can tell that the doctors come with solemn news to, to bring. And he says to the person that the only way that they will survive this is if they have that offending part of the body removed. And, and they say to them, this is a horrible circumstance, this is a difficult circumstance, but this is a life-saving solution. Now, when you consider how awful a predicament that is, isn't it astonishing that that is the language that Jesus uses here metaphorically of your sin and my sin? Look at verse 43. He says this, and remember again, I I repeat to you that this is your Savior. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. And what does he say? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. Isn't that an arresting image? Now, now do this with me. Would you consider the parts of the body that Jesus highlights 
for amputation, if you like. Now, it's not, is it? It's not if you're tall. And it's not if you're pinky or a fingernail uh, causes you to sit and get rid of it, cut it off. What are the parts of the body? Did you see? Your eye. Your hand. Your, 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 your foot. Do you see critical, vital parts of the human anatomy? Do you see the point here? Because regardless of how integral, regardless of how dear something is to us, if it is causing us to sin, what must happen? It must be removed. Are you listening to me? Do you see it? Regardless of how much we cherish something, be it a relationship that we are having, or be it a pattern of living we've got ourselves into, or be it even a chosen career path, if that thing has us entrapped into sin, what does Jesus say to us? You've got to get rid of it. It's got to go. It's got to go. So we see the seriousness of sin, don't we, in this image. It's an awful image that Jesus uses. But we also see the seriousness of sin here in a contrast that he draws. And again, what do I mean by that? Well, quite a while ago, a a lady approached me, a woman came up to me, and she wanted to speak to me about her minister. The alarm bells instantly go off. She's not a part of this church, and it was quite a while ago. She comes to speak to me. She wants to speak to me about her minister. I could tell, like, straight away uh, that this woman was none too happy with her pastor at all, not happy with her minister. And I could see it coming from a mile away, too. I knew where she was going. I was like, oh, don't go there, don't go there. And she did. She stooped to that sort of quintessential modern complaint that people have about ministers. She was ugh. He's just one of those fire and brimstone type guys, you know. He's one of those fire and brimstone type preachers. There's there's a couple of uh, problems that I've got with that whole scenario. First of all, uh, she shouldn't have been speaking to me about her minister behind his back. That goes without saying. Here's the second problem I've got with that. Isn't it true that our Lord himself was a fire and brimstone type preacher. You see what I, what I mean by that, do you? Don't we see that here in this portion of scripture? See, the Lord draws a contrast here to try and encourage you to, to take your sin seriously. He, he draws a contrast, and it's a contrast between those who have their sin dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ and who enter into eternal life a contrast between them and a contrast between between them and those who do not have their sin dealt with. Now, I have a question for you. Where is it that that second group are said by Jesus to end up? Look at verse 43. If you don't know the answer, look at it. The second group end up. They end up in hell. I know instantly that uh, we feel uneasy in our seats, don't we? When the minister mentions hell, it makes us uncomfortable. But we are working through Mark's gospel, aren't we? And we come to a moment where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about 
hell. This cannot be ignored. What does our Lord mean by hell? Well, the word that he uses, the word that Jesus chooses to use here is taken, and it's taken from uh, the place name for Gehenna. You've heard that, I'm sure, haven't you? The idea, the, the, the word, the place, Gehenna. Now, what, what is Gehenna? What was Gehenna? Well, Gehenna was a, an area outside of the city boundaries of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, it was a place in what was called the Hinnon Valley. So it's just to the southwest of Jerusalem. Here's what you need to know. It was formerly a place associated with Child sacrifice. That was its connotation. There was child sacrifice in Gehenna. Child sacrifice to Canaanite gods. And because of that, everybody knew that Gehenna was a place that was cursed by God. I mean, cursed, a horrendous place. And by the time the Lord Jesus Christ here. The Gehenna had become, quite simply, the town, the city, rubbish dump. It was the tip. And you need to know that Gehenna stank. I mean, it was renowned for being just the most disgusting place. And this was a place that was constantly ablaze. Imagine that, there's fire, constant flames, constantly burning in Gehenna. Why is that? That's the people are trying to deal with all of the refuse, all of the waste of the city. A horrible place. Everyone knew, a cursed place. And so do you see what Jesus is doing here? And here, he's taking that place. He's taking it to us and saying, that's it. That is a picture of what awaits for those who remain in their sin. That is the sort of thing that awaits for those who are unrepentant before him. Isn't it shocking? And if you don't think that's shocking, note what he says about hell here. Look at verse 48. He says that there, he quotes Isaiah, and he says that in hell, the worm... Does not, aren't these some of the most shocking words that have ever been spoken? The worm there does not die, and the fire, it is not quenched. Do you see it? Do you see it? That Jesus says, for those who remain outside of him, there is a place. And what is it like? It is a place of unending and constant turmoil. The worm doesn't die. The fires never go out. It is a place of enduring, a place of ongoing hell, ongoing pain. And friends, I believe this. I believe if ever there were a text, or if ever there were a section of scripture to make you sit up and think about the future. It's that. 
If ever there was a text, if ever there was a portion of Scripture that God has brought you in a church today to hear, if ever there was a a text to, to make you consider your heart, to make you consider your sin, it is that. I ask you, are you repentant before an almighty and a holy God? Are you taking your sin seriously? Are you taking your sin so seriously that your sin is throwing you towards the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that true of you? Because friends, listen to me as I say this. It is only He, it is only Jesus, it is only the Messiah who can save you from, yes, yourself, and save you from sin and save you from misery. It's only Jesus who can save you from hell. And then the third thing, we see a warning about the suffering ahead. A warning about the suffering ahead. I think it is when we get to the last verses of this section that we begin to really see why people uh, struggle with this portion of Scripture. Do you remember people's complaint? Do you remember what it is? They, They say that this is just random sayings all thrown together. It doesn't seem to be tied to any sort of theme. Well, maybe if you get into verse 49, verse 50, maybe you can kind of see where people are coming from. Because he's been talking about hell. And then Jesus moves and seems to talk about something that's unconnected. The only sort of connection seems to be the imagery. Because the imagery, again, is fire. Be assured, friends, it's not disconnected. Be assured that even in verse 49, even in verse 50, all of it falls under this theme of the cost of following Christ. So what is it that our Lord says to us? Tell you what, let's just deal with six words, shall we? In closing, the first six words of verse 49. Let's deal with those. What does Jesus say? He says, everyone will be Salted with fire. Six words, that's it. Everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? What does that mean? Everyone will be salted with fire. Well, salt is a common image right throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, isn't it? Salt. Common metaphor. We see quite a lot, don't we? We see it in the Old Testament, see it in the New. Now, two To get Jesus' meaning there, though, I think you and I need to consider the Old Testament temple. Just for a moment, the the sacrificial system. Because did you know this? That every single sacrifice in that temple, and there were a lot of sacrifices, weren't there, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. Every single burnt offering, what had to happen before they were presented to God? Do you know this? Every single animal, every single sacrifice had to be first salted. Salt, we're told in Leviticus, had to be applied before these sacrifices were engulfed in flames. Salt applied before these things were presented to God. Now, aren't you with me? That seems to be what Jesus has in mind, doesn't he? When he says everyone will be salted with fire. Now, do you see though? Do you see what he's saying to you 
and about you. That just as Paul does in in Romans, that here Jesus is speaking about his people as what? Living sacrifices. And that to be prepared for that day when we will be presented to God, what must happen in our lives? That we too must be salted. And what is this salting? What does it consist of? You see it? Friends, Christians, we are salted by the fires of suffering. Now, you can imagine, can't you, uh, how this portion of scripture would have been greeted by Mark's first readers in Rome. You know, those poor Christians who are trying to serve Jesus under Emperor Nero to hear at this point that their trials and their difficulties and their sufferings, they weren't symptoms of abandonment by God. But no, what's, what's Christ saying? He's saying your, your sufferings, all of this you're going through, it's actually a sign that I am, Christ is at work in their lives. Those people in Rome must have been rejoicing. But it's not just Mark's first readership that should be encouraged by that, is it? Because I know eh, that some of the congregation just now are at the point where they are on their knees before God and crying out to God, why has this happened? I know there's a lot of people in the congregation who are uh, at the point of saying, why such a providence? Why is something like this happening to me? Why am I going through this difficulty? Why am I going through this trial? Well, if you are one of those people, surely you see one glorious answer that God has given you in his word today. That part of the reason for your present affliction is what? It is... Preparation. That you, as a living sacrifice, you are going through this present difficulty. Why? So that you are better prepared for that glorious moment when you will finally, finally stand and appear before Almighty God. You see it? You're suffering just now. It's not a symptom of abandonment. What is it? It is a symptom that God is a sign that God is at work in your life, that he is preparing you, preparing you. You are being salted with fire for that moment where through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ, you are finally presented to your God, presented to your King. Everyone is salted with fire. And then we, we we close with this. I don't think anyone just now reads those verses and concludes anything other than there is a great cost of discipleship. But perhaps some people in the room say just now, how can a loving Jesus and a loving God say such things? How can a, a loving Lord Jesus, how can he possibly ask Such incredible things of those who follow him. To give up so much to follow him. How can, how can Jesus dare ask that of people? If you're asking that question, I want you to see the answer to it on the table in front of you just now. 
How is it that Jesus can ask this of us? What has he done for us, friends? He has died a death for us. We are in a moment to remember his death. And you see in the portion of Scripture just what that death entailed, don't you? What was Christ but the once and for all sacrifice? The once and for all sacrifice for sin. And you see what happened in his death, don't you? He was salted more than any of us will ever know that he experienced the salting of of suffering, didn't he? And of what did that consist? Do you listen to me? That he there on Calvary Hill, there at Golgotha, for you, for me, for us, he endured what? He endured hell. I mean, isn't that what the Apostles' Creed teaches us? That he suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, dead, buried, that, that he descended into hell. Don't you see the reality of that? On the cross, Christ spiritually experienced all of those atrocities. All of the terror of Gehenna. You see, all of it, the worms, the fire, the flame of the righteous anger of God at our sin, all of it, he experienced, he endured hell. And why? All for you. All for you. All of it for you. All of it, because as you sit in the church just now, the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with immeasurable love for you as a Christian. He suffered there for you. And so what do we do just now, the people of God? What do we do? What must we do as God's little ones, as his children? We come at the table, don't we? And we come to the table with such gratitude in our hearts, don't we? Such thankfulness. We consider the punishment that he bore, what he bore for us. That he endured Gehenna. All that you, all that me, all that we might live. Isn't it marvelous, isn't it? What a God we have. What a gospel we have to proclaim. Let's pray.